Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And what the hell are we doing today? We're going to talk about p-values. Hurrah. Now, p-values are, well, they're godlike in the world of research. I mean, the whole world is about p-values. Isn't there a, isn't there a kind of a, a joke about, you know, p-value, definition of, of, of absolutely the worst thing in the world for a, a researcher is p-value equals 0.06. Success, p-value equals 0.04. So important to get these things right. Yep, make or break your academic career based on that p-value. I know, but it's not right though, is it? No, it's not right. Um, but it's really important because it appears in all the different papers, so you're bound to find it when you do critical appraisals. It often comes up in the um, uh, in the FRChem exams, critical appraisal exams, you know, define what you mean by a p-value. So it's kind of important that we get a, a, a good idea about what it actually is, but also how we as clinicians can use that information when we're looking at papers. So you can go and look at a, a textbook definition of p-values and things like that, but I often find them um, a bit confusing, really. Is, do you have any ways of sort of thinking about them and sort of conceptualising what we, what we mean by p-values? When we were just talking about the, this concept uh, between ourselves, you made a really important point about the null hypothesis. And I think that's that if we start with the null hypothesis and understand what we're testing, uh, then it will really help us to understand what the p-value actually means, because it's all about that null hypothesis. P-values are, are, are probabilities in a way, and they're a, a way of doing what we call significance testing. So going back to a null hypothesis, say we've got a trial or something like that, we usually start with something like the, the purpose of this trial is to find out um, if there's a difference. But it's not really. That's not how we construct it. We construct around the null hypothesis, which basically says what we're trying to do is to find out what. Well, a null hypothesis will say that there's no difference between two approaches or two treatments. And we aim then to disprove that null hypothesis. So when we're doing p-value testing, actually what we're expressing with the p-value is the probability that if the null hypothesis was true, then we'd get a result that's at least as extreme as the one that we've seen. Yeah, so I'll say it again because I think it's really important. If the null hypothesis is true the chances of finding a result of this difference or more unlikely than this is equivalent to whatever the p-value is. So a p-value of 0.1 would be 10% of the time. P-value of 0.05, the famous one, 5% of the time, or 1 in 20 times. Worth noting at this point that 1 in 20 is not that unusual. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a very magical figure, this 0.05. But um, there is, of course, no magic about it whatsoever. <laughs> and, um, you know, it is quite a fragile thing. So we have to be a little bit intelligent in interpreting the p-value because there are lots of limitations to it. One of them, of course, being the difference between clinical significance and st statistical significance. We can find a highly significant p-value and a very, very small difference. It could be something which is not that important, or we could, with the very, very large studies, be able to detect very small differences, which we think, actually, I don't care. So you might find in a big study that you you can reduce, or oh, I don't know, blood pressure by 0.5 millimetres of mercury. Really? I mean, is that that important? You might be able to prove it in numbers, but not the same as clinical importance. So that's always going to be a question we ask. And that's also going to be a particularly interesting question when we talk about this 0.05 the one in 20 then when we're looking at what really means a difference there are some things where that's not going to be enough proof yeah that's right so there's one way of measuring that which is the fragility index and that tells us a little bit about how resilient that figure is to changes if we got slightly different results yeah so fragility index has been offered as an alternative to p-values and basically what that says is that you do a trial 
and you may find out that something is statistically significant with a p-value of say 0.04 and then fragility index asks how many people in that trial would have to flip their results so have an alternative outcome for it to become non-significant and it's quite interesting you look at even big trials and um, particularly where the event rate or whatever it is you're looking at is quite small the fragility index can just be a handful of patients and that's really really interesting when you look at particularly some of the larger critical care trials but going back to this 0.05 thing, it has become magical. But actually, there's a lot of trials now which are funded by large organisations, the big randomised control trials, where when they're calculating the number of people that they need to have in the trial, the power calculation, or the sample size calculation more accurately, they're saying that actually we want a better level of proof of this. They're actually going for often 0.02. So one in 50 chance of getting a result this unlikely or more unlikely um, as, a, as a positive result. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's tricky. You've got to be, there's got to be a balance, hasn't there? Because we don't want to throw away good treatments that might benefit patients just because we haven't hit really strict statistical criteria for success. Um, but at the same time, we don't really want to be subjecting patients to treatments that are actually doing them no good. It's just a statistical quirk. When we're looking at trials in particular, we might look at lots of different outcomes, actually. So we might, and, and I think most of the trials you look at now, there'll be a number of different results in the results section. Each will have their own little p-value. Is that a problem with us doing lots of analyses? Well, it can be. So if you imagine that one in 20 chance of getting a p-value of less than 0.05, you know, then and we do multiple tests now the chances that we're going to find one of those p-values of less than 0.05, just by chance alone, is really going up. Yeah, it starts to ramp up quite quickly, in fact. Yeah, so this is a problem that we have with multiple testing, mm-hmm. um, and that it actually biases you to finding something positive when actually there was nothing positive to find, you were just fishing. So there are some adjustments that we can make for that, like the Bonferroni adjustment, for example. Bonferroni is a bit crude, but it is used, and basically I think every time you increase the number of times you've done a, re- a, a test then you adjust, basically divide the significance by the number of times you do the do the analysis. And that can be used, but it is a bit of a blunt tool. And sometimes it can feel a bit draconian, particularly when you're looking at studies where you're quite exploratory about what's going on. So you might do a study where you plan to do lots of analyses because you really don't know what's going to go on. And then use that data, have a look what is potentially significant, and then take that through to a a greater depth of analysis in a future study. So not achieving a 0.05 sometimes is is also important. And just because something doesn't reach statistical significance, you still may want to have a look at that data. Yeah, and you've raised a really important point about interim analyses there, because Mm. we we just talked about the danger of doing multiple testing, and one of them just by chance will be positive. And the same applies for doing multiple you know, interim analyses. So if you're in, running a randomised controlled trial, we don't want to be subjecting patients to, you know, interventional treatments for too long. As soon as we know it's successful, we want all our patients to be getting this successful treatment. And if we know it's harmful, we want to stop the trial so that they don't get any more, any more of the potentially harmful treatment. Uh, so you could say, well, why don't we just keep on testing? And if we reach that p-value of 0.05 and show success, then we can stop the trial because we've shown success. But of course, you've got into the problem of multiple testing. So there are ways of doing it. You can you have a p-value spending uh, function so that every time you do the test, you accept a more stringent p-value just to represent statistical significance. But also, really importantly, we have to limit the number of interim analyses that we do because otherwise it is literally just fishing. I can't remember the exact statistics, but I do know that if you say you're doing a large randomised control trial and you decide to do an analysis after every patient, 
then you'll, you'll definitely get a you'll definitely get a positive result, even if there's no difference between the two groups. Pretty much on the, on the basis of chance, mathematicians will tell me that, that that that's not actually strictly true. But the point is that the the chances of you finding a positive result just by chance by doing lots of interims is terrible. So I think there's something there about when you're designing and looking at a critical plays of a trial. If there have been interim analyses, then you want to see that they've been pre-planned. They've been understood. And actually, in a lot of large studies now, and I'm on a couple of um, data monitoring committees, the analysis is done by somebody else. And they will only stop the trial early if there's very significant evidence that actually continuing would be the wrong thing to do. So the marker and the bar for stopping a trial early is actually higher than than we would normally look for in the outcomes of critical appraisal. Absolutely. Some important concepts out around multiple testing, interim analyses. We've talked about the difference between clinical significance and statistical significance. Maybe we should touch on effect size as well. I mean, that, that kind of overlaps with clinical and statistical significance, doesn't it? But one of the common criticisms of a p-value is, you know, it can look very impressive. P less than 0.0001, but that difference can be small. So we need to take into account some measure of effect size as well. P-value is not going to tell us the full story. And that's where your 95% confidence intervals mm. come in. And that, that's really important to tell us the full picture. We shouldn't just be relying on P-value to tell us whether or not our intervention is successful. I would agree. Let's just quickly whiz through that. P-values start with null hypothesis. We're trying to disprove the null hypothesis. And a P-value is a measure of the probability of finding a result this unlikely or more unlikely, assuming that there's no difference between the the two interventions or however many interventions you're looking at. Keep that in mind and p-values actually become a lot clearer and a lot more easy to understand. Yep, we hope that's uh, made things a bit clearer for you. Okay, so with a high probability that you've enjoyed this podcast, that's rubbish. That was rubbish actually, that's a terrible joke. With a high probability that you enjoyed this podcast just for the second time, enjoy your emergency medicine and whatever it is, whatever else you're up to. Happy appraising. (laughs) 